You've heard the saying, we are what we eat. But one doctor says we're also when we eat. Timing of our behaviors is important as far as how it relates with our internal clock. Our body has developed a particular rhythm for behaviors and processes, and we have to think of ways to minimize disrupting that. Learn how his research shows when we eat might increase or decrease our risk for developing fatty liver disease. We'll also discover a recent study focusing on energy intake and expenditure to fight obesity in children with special needs. We are advancing the science of accurate measurement of energy expenditure and energy intake. This is going to help the public by providing interventions and prevention and treatment of obesity, whether it's in the clinic or in research, based on science that currently you just don't have. Children with special need may get overlooked with the war on childhood obesity, but in reality, they're just as deserving for physical activity and nutrition interventions. It's a look at two intriguing, eye-opening studies, each related to eating, inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. You're familiar with the adage, you are what you eat. Well, some recent medical findings suggest that perhaps it's more accurate to say we are what and when we eat. Dr. James Esteban is a fellow in the Medical College of Wisconsin's Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, whose research findings point to an increased risk for the development of a condition known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, based on when and how often a person eats. Dr. Esteban was recently invited to present his research at The Liver Meeting, an annual conference held by the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing details of his research from Dr. Esteban himself. To set the stage for sharing his research findings, we asked Dr. Esteban, first, what is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or you know, we usually call it by its acronym, NAFLD, essentially describes a condition where there's excessive accumulation of fat in the liver. And as the name implies, that excessive fat accumulation is because of reasons other than excessive alcohol use. Now, excessive alcohol use can cause a similar accumulation of fat in the liver, and we came up with this term to make that distinction. It's common causes. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is generally thought of as the manifestation in the liver of the metabolic syndrome, composed of diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. Having these risk factors will predispose someone to have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, there are other risk factors for NAFLD as well, including sleep apnea, being physically inactive, and also with some dietary indiscretion. So is NAFLD considered a serious ailment? 
Well, it depends. It's actually a spectrum. Naffold encompasses a set of conditions ranging from just an accumulation of fat in your liver, in which case by itself, it's not really extremely serious. The other conditions that's part of the spectrum of Naffold are steatohepatitis, whereby you have the fat accumulation in your liver and at the same time, inflammation resulting from this fat. This is considered more serious. If you keep this inflammation going for a long time, you eventually develop cirrhosis, the end stage in liver disease. What are common risk factors associated with NAFLD and who is most at risk? There are risk factors which we consider non-modifiable. Age, being male, certain ethnicities, in particular Hispanics, are at a higher risk for NAFLD. And there are studies indicating that NAFLD might actually be hereditary. On the other hand, there are also modifiable risk factors, high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, obesity, diabetes. These are conditions that we can potentially modify by losing weight, eating better, being more physically active, and so on. Dr. Esteban says that in order to understand his research, we must first understand that the liver, like other organs in our body, follows an internal clock on a 24-hour cycle known as a circadian rhythm. Processes within the body and even our behaviors follow this cycle that repeats itself every 24 hours. And this particular cycle is connected to day and night. You know, you sleep at night, you wake up in the morning, and you keep on repeating this process. Each organ of the body is is believed to follow its own 24-hour rhythm. There have been studies showing the liver has its own intrinsic clock as well. Then what is the healthy liver's main function within this 24-hour circadian rhythm? The liver is the hot pot of metabolic processes in the body. These processes also follow a particular rhythm. There are certain metabolic pathways that are more active at night, more active in the daytime. And aside from the day-night cycle, it's believed that the rhythm in the liver is also directed to a certain extent by when you eat. He explains further. The circadian rhythm developed as a way for our bodies to anticipate predictable changes in our environment. So for example, during the daytime, we are programmed to be active. When we eat, we're programmed to burn energy, to use up energy to allow us to be active. And then when you cycle that to the nighttime, when we're supposed to be sleeping, we assume that the pathways that are active should be ones that would promote energy storage. Research typically stems from the desire to answer a specific burning question. For Dr. Esteban, that question was... I wanted to see how disruptions in the normal circadian rhythm, in as far as this affects our eating behaviors and eating times, affect a person's risk of having fatty liver. NAFLD is poised to become the most common chronic liver disease, so there's a big public health significance to it. Dr. Esteban then analyzed a survey called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES. He explains why this particular data set was chosen for his research. This is a survey conducted by the National Statistics Office and the CDC almost every two years. They get a random sample of the non-institutionalized civilian population all throughout the U.S. It is a survey that's particularly made to look into the general health status as well as lifestyles of Americans. 
it's one of the few surveys that has information with regards to people's eating habits, physical activity, health history, and it's very comprehensive. And it was particularly suited for my research question because in the third cycle of NHANES, 14,000 participants also underwent an ultrasound of their liver, which allowed us to determine which of these people have fatty liver. And since we know their alcohol intake, divide them into those that are alcoholic versus non-alcoholic. In conducting his research on when we eat and the relative risk for NAFLD, he divided the typical day into four intervals. I divided a day into four six-hour periods. My assumption was these indicated periods where meals are considered normal, 4 a.m. to 10 a.m., between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., 4 p.m. and 10 p.m., and then to round it off, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. What was examined within each of these intervals? First is, I looked at how many separate meals people have throughout the whole day, regardless of intervals. Second, within each interval, I tried to figure out which people ate and which people did not. In other words, breakfast skippers or lunch skippers, dinner skippers, and so on. The other thing I did, I looked at the total calories within that particular interval, looked at what percent of their total calories did they eat at a particular interval. And what he found was quite interesting. And it's bad news for you breakfast, lunch, or breakfast and lunch meal skippers. Essentially what stood out the most increasing the odds of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was skipping breakfast and skipping the midday meal. Which is to say, if you don't have a meal between 4 a.m. and 10 a.m. and between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Those are the factors that were associated with the highest odds of NAFL. But here's the good news. On the other hand, assuming equal calories throughout the day, distributing those calories out as more individual meals appeared to also decrease the odds of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So those are really the biggest takeaway points I got after all the analyses. What about late night eating, whether out of necessity because you work third shift or by choice because you prefer being a night owl? Dr. Esteban says, That's a good question because I think the people who would be affected by the results of the study are people who would inevitably have to skip their daytime meals because they're sleeping and would have to eat at night because they're working. Whether or not I would advise them to don't eat during their night shifts and to eat during the daytime, or which is to say, you know, preserve the norm in as far as daytime eating is concerned. I'm not sure if the study right now is specifically designed to make that recommendation. Certainly, that should be a focus of future investigations on this matter because this is the population of people that would most be affected by these findings. However, Dr. Esteban says his findings show that while late night eating can increase odds for NAFLD, skipping meals in the 4 a.m. to 10 a.m. and 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. intervals still presents greater risk. What I found rather interesting was that if I look at the overall analysis, the daytime meal skipping is more robustly associated with, with NAFLD than having the late night meals, although that's not to say that the late night meals is an insignificant finding. It was still significant, but the robustness is better with the meal skipping. He says society changes leading to more people being up later at night should be considered. Although, he explains that the NHANES study couldn't account for this. Just the way modern society has advanced, you know, you see more people working at night. At the same time, with technology, mobile devices and tablets keeping people up all night, there has been a lot of suggestion in the literature that these things have actually shifted our circadian clocks 
we have to remember that NHANES 3 was done almost 30 years ago. You could argue during that era, people's day-night schedules are different compared to what we have over the past decade. And so whether or not the findings reflect these changes, it's conjectural. Let's talk about how frequency of eating can affect one's risk for developing NAFLD. Is there a magic number of meals one should eat daily? The analysis wasn't designed to give a particular number. What it did show was that for every additional meal that you add, decreased the odds of NAFLD by 10%, assuming the total calories is the same. So thinking about it that way, someone who eats six meals a day compared to someone who eats three meals a day might be a 30% decreased odds of having NAFLD. Now, that doesn't give us a, a firm recommendation as to how many times you should eat, but certainly suggests that it might be a good idea to squeeze in smaller snacks in between the main meals of the day. Conversely, the negative effect of skipping meals. If you skip lunchtime, the 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. meal, the odds of NAFL goes up by about 70%. If you skip breakfast time, 4 to 10, it goes up by about 20 to 30%. If you're the type of person that skips both, the risk goes up even more and it's closer to 90%. But while those numbers are eye-opening, he clarifies for us. I think I need to emphasize the numbers all refer to the odds of someone having NAFLD rather than what true risk of having NAFLD because these are patients who we were unable to follow up over time. So this is just a snapshot during that time period when they answer the surveys. What if you're eating or not eating at all of the wrong times? Is it too late to avoid or reverse NAFLD? Is it too late? I would say no, I think not. If they've already had fatty liver, that's reversible. In fact, if meal timing is truly something that is a risk factor, changing or modifying it, even with presence of fatty liver, is not too late. More research is necessary to solidify his findings. But what are the takeaway points he wants us to consider in avoiding risk for onset of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Overall, takeaway points would be, one, distribute your daily calories into several meals throughout the day rather than concentrating them on big meals. Now that has to be taken with a grain of salt because if you have many meals but each meal is a high calorie meal that's not going to decrease your risk. The second is that as much as we can try not to avoid the daytime meals you know don't skip breakfast don't skip lunch those are the more important takeaway points from the study. Because sometimes good health is like clockwork. That's Dr. James Esteban, a fellow in the Medical College of Wisconsin's Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. With research findings he recently presented at an annual conference held by the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease. Our thanks to Dr. Esteban for joining us. Obesity, and more specifically, childhood obesity, has reached near-epidemic proportions in the U.S. today. According to statistics from the National Institutes of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Disease, about one-third of kids ages 6 to 19 are overweight to obese, with more than one in six considered to be obese. Dr. Michelle Polfis is Assistant Professor, College of Nursing at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, whose research focuses on pediatric obesity. But more specifically, she explores the roles that family, parenting, and feeding behaviors play in the rate of obesity among children with special needs. Dr. Polfis was a principal investigator of a recent study to find ways of accurately measuring both the energy expenditure and intake of children with special needs, in hopes it will lead to better interventions in battling this health issue. 
Andrea Moosreiner is program manager of the CTSI's Bionutrition and Body Composition Lab in the Adult Translational Research Unit, who assisted in the study. Andrea worked directly with special needs children by helping them record and recall their energy intake, or eating, through the innovative use of technology. We had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with both to learn about the study. As principal investigator, Dr. Polfus tells us what the study's primary purpose was. To help us understand energy expenditure in this population of children of special needs, something that's really not well understood. And she shares how she came to identify the need for the study. My interest area is obesity research, and I have a particular interest in children with special needs. And we often hear about obesity in our nation, but we don't hear that children with special needs have a higher prevalence than our typically developing population. There's really not a lot of research in the area, and if you want to intervene, you have to know the basics, so energy in and energy out, and that's something we don't know because it's a little different in children with special needs. I chose to focus, first of all, on energy going out in the form of activity and how do we measure it so we can use it for research and use it in the clinic. Of course, children can be afflicted with many different types of disabilities, but for this study, Dr. Polfus focused on two. We specifically chose two populations that are known to have higher prevalence of obesity, so we chose uh, Down syndrome, which is an intellectual disability, and spina bifida, which has a a physical disability component for the ability to compare the two and because they are two higher needed populations to look at. So how common is childhood obesity within the special needs populations that were the focus of this study? It's really hard to quantify or get accurate statistics for children with disability if they can't have the traditional measures apply to them as well or it's not going to be as accurate. And also the two diagnoses that we chose are known to have a higher composition of body fat compared to muscle mass and muscle mass is really what helps us for our metabolism. It's hard to get accurate measurements and and it's often not done or it's on a very small sample size. But although limited, there are some statistics available. What I found in the literature is that the prevalence of overweight and obesity in children with spina bifida can be as high as 50 to 64 percent, Down syndrome 30 to 50 percent, and our typically developing youth we hear overweight and obesity is at 31.7 percent. And unfortunately, obesity can lead to other risks for these special needs children. Cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, ability to be mobile, the ability for them to self-manage, the risk of pressure sores or skin breakdown, potential social isolation, and then especially with spina bifida, there's a lot of surgeries, and so when you carry excess body weight, you are at higher risk for surgeries. And the last part is, if you're carrying excess body weight, that caregiver has a much harder time. With the ultimate goal, having them be independent, it just puts a barrier that doesn't need to be there. Next, Dr. Polfus says there were four specific aims of this study. The first three aims were really looking at the different measurements of energy expenditure that are used in research. So we needed to know, is it feasible? Would the kids be able to to do them with the parents' mind doing them with the children. We specifically chose different age groups and different diagnoses. We had a group of children who primarily used a wheelchair that had spina bifida, a group who did not with spina bifida, Down syndrome, and also a control group. In measuring the energy expenditure of kids with special needs, specifically with Down syndrome and spina bifida, what exactly was measured and what tools were used in measuring? We looked at measurements of energy expenditure. Metabolic heart is used to look at a resting metabolic rate. We looked at indirect calorimeter that we could use to look at their activity-related metabolic rate. We used accelerometers, which are like a fancy pedometer, but we, they can wear them on the waist and the wrist, and we chose to do both to compare the two. We used journaling on a paper format. And then a gold standard criterion that we used is called doubly labeled water, and that gives us validated measurement of energy expenditure that we could compare these other measures to. Now, as Dr. Polfus mentioned, the first three aims of the study were predetermined to focus on energy expenditure. 
but once the study was underway, additional funding became available. And that allowed us to add an additional aim. Since we had the first three aims that looked at energy output, we wanted to balance that out by energy input. So we looked at two different methods of how to measure nutritional intake. It decreased the purpose for them having to come back to the clinic, which was helpful. We'll learn more about the unique and pretty cool ways this study measured the energy intake of these special needs kids when we hear from bio-nutritionist Andrea Moosreiner in a moment. But first, we wanted to learn what funding mechanisms were utilized to support this study. Our primary source of funding was related to something called a P20 grant. I'm an assistant professor at UW-Milwaukee, and our self-management science center was awarded this and through that grant are able to give out pilot project grants. So that's where our primary funding came from, the National Institutes of Nursing Research through NIH, through this P20 mechanism. And what about the additional funding that became available, allowing the study to expand to measure both energy expenditure and energy intake? Where did that come from? We were subsequently awarded a CTSI grant, which was wonderful because that allowed us to add our control group and an additional energy expenditure test to our study. And then the fourth aim that we added was also through the CTSI they had mentioned that if there was the ability to add additional funding through the pilot awards, they want to make it available so it would help us further our initial project. So we were made aware of that and we were very fortunate to get it. Andrea Moosreiner is a bionutritionist who works in the CTSI's Adult Translational Research Unit, or TRU. When Dr. Polfa's study expanded to include a focus on energy intake, Andrea got the call. I had previously worked with Dr. Polfus measuring body composition in children with spina bifida. After working with her on that study, she reached out to see if I was interested in helping take her research a step farther, measuring physical activity and energy expenditure in children with special needs. Andrea says she welcomed the opportunity to fulfill one of Dr. Polfus' needs. She knew a nutrition component piece was needed to capture the whole picture about what was going on with energy in and energy out. With the CTSI's mobility fund, we were able to add that fourth aim, the nutrition aim. She says that measuring dietary intake for assessment is challenging, even with tools and apps that are readily available. Diet assessment and research needs to be extremely detailed due to all the limitations that complicates getting a true measurement of dietary intake. Many people are familiar with MyFitnessPal or LoseIt, a nutrition app that you download onto your phone. If you've ever used those applications, you know that what you put into it doesn't necessarily capture all that you've eaten. It doesn't capture the brand or how you prepared something. In addition, you have to estimate how much you ate and first you have to remember what you ate. It's even more challenging when assessing dietary intake for children. There are a lot of limitations in diet assessment in general. Diet assessment in children is even more difficult because you're battling with memory that's not fully developed and the fact that children don't often buy and cook their own food. Children don't always know how much they're eating or the details of what they're eating. So participants were set up with an iPad to help the researchers more accurately measure each child's food intake. Dr. Polfus and I met with the participant. They came into the adult TRU and we showed them how to use the iPad minis that had the special application downloaded onto them to record their meals and we showed them how to FaceTime so I could complete 24-hour recalls with them. All kids know how to FaceTime, so that part was easy. What a great and interesting use of technology. 
Next, Andrea explains that each iPad was loaded with a technology-assisted dietary assessment application, the mobile food record. This is an application that was created by Purdue University. What this application does is allows you to have a controlled before and after image of your meal. Then she details how the children used their iPad with this app for the study. This application allowed them to track their food throughout the day. All the images that they took got uploaded onto a website that I was unable to access and I determined what their dietary intake was. We asked each participant to record six full days of meals, snacks, beverages. After each day they recorded their food intake using the iPad, I then FaceTimed with them and asked them what they ate the day before, comparing the two methods, what they ate via all their pictures and then what they could remember. Data from the intake focus of the study is just now being analyzed, so it's early for statistical findings, but Andrea says a lot was observed. All the parents and the participants were very involved with using the iPad and, and FaceTiming with me, so much so that it may be even a population bias, that parents of children with special needs may be more involved with their children's daily happenings, including their meals. We also observed diet patterns pretty quickly, so I see these observations supporting the notion that eating habits really start from an early age. Meanwhile, data from the energy expenditure focus is much further along in its analysis. Dr. Polfis says she's pleased with what she's seeing for this and future studies. For the first three aims, they were really good results and we feel good about using them in future studies. One of the findings is we're starting to see that there is ability to document differences by diagnosis of how much energy that they use on a day on average. And when we go further with our research, translating this for clinic and other researchers to use, then our next study will be able to give a more quantifiable number to show not only how much energy is going out, but how much energy they need, because we know parents want to do what's best for their kids. And if you tell them this is what they need, they'll follow through. But if we don't tell them that information, they don't know. And our society is not really good at limiting food intake. And she's encouraged by partnerships that have emerged as a result of the study. There was concern that we would have a harder time with recruiting families. They weren't sure if they wanted their children to be in the research. And what we found is that the families were thrilled that we actually chose their children to look at. And so between them and the community partnerships that we were able to work with and help get the word out about our study, like the Down Syndrome Association or Spina Bifida Association of Wisconsin and Children's Hospital Clinics. They were very helpful to us. We've gained a lot of good partnerships for future research. Andrea says assessing food intake for kids is challenging, but it can be done, even in the presence of parents who are just trying to help. It was difficult, especially when you have a parent that wants to help. It is best to just let a child run with what they remember versus telling them, like, no, I served you broccoli and kids like, yeah, I didn't eat that. <laughs> but she adds it was fun FaceTiming with the participants and seeing that even when assessing food intake of special needs children, kids are kids. It was just really fun getting to FaceTime with the participants and seeing what they remembered in comparison to what their pictures showed. They all took pictures of their snacks consisted of a lot of junk food, but they seem to forget having that snack. And so I wonder if it's because they know they're reporting this to a healthcare professional and they just don't want to admit that, or if they truly just kind of mindlessly ate that snack. And the use of technology really helped hold the kids accountable. Taking a picture and having it get sent off doesn't give you one-on-one -on -one accountability, but it was different when you had a face-to-face -face meeting, and that's what was nice about using FaceTime. Yeah, you do see some hesitation 
when they're like, no, I didn't have any dessert. <laughs> Dr. Polfis stresses the importance that interdisciplinary and interinstitutional collaboration played in the study. We had team members that were from different institutions, accelerometer work that was guided by Dr. Scott Strath and Dr. Paula Papanik, and they are from UW-Milwaukee and Marquette, respectively. Kim Zavara is the medical director and practicing physician in the physical medicine and rehabilitation, and she needs a shout out. She was a PI on the first three aims of the study and was integral in helping with background on the diagnoses along with recruitment strategies. And we are so fortunate in Madison to have Dr. Dale Schiller, who was one of the early pioneers of AA labeled water. He has been gracious to work with us. And then the pediatric and the adult translational research units really have been supportive throughout the beginning of the study, all through the four aims. She's pleased that the study was inclusive, innovative, and there's broader impact. We are advancing the science of accurate measurement of energy expenditure and energy intake in two understudied populations. And even though we chose children to work with, this can extrapolate out to all individuals with these diagnoses. This is going to help the public by providing information for future development of interventions and prevention and treatment of obesity based on science that currently you just don't have. That's Dr. Michelle Polfis, assistant professor in the College of Nursing at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Andrea Moosreiner, program manager of the CTSI's Bionutrition and Body Composition Lab in the Adult Translational Research Unit. Thanks to both for sharing your insights on today's show. And with that, we've reached the end for another edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Once again, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. James Esteban, Dr. Michelle Polfis, and Andrea Moosreiner. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellman. Wishing you happy, healthy days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, please be sure and sign up as a community member. We need your help as we strive to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of our community and people worldwide. And remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.